Alright, before we get started, Berlin Bitcoin Space, 5th to 7th of October this year at Station Berlin. We expect 2,000 guests. There will be two industry days, one focused on lightning and payments, and one focused on mining and energy, and then a consumer day after that. Get yourself a ticket, 21% discount if you pay in Bitcoin, another 5% if you use the code HASHRATEUP. Check out the episode description and visit berlinbitcoinspace.io for more information. Let's get on with the episode. Hash rate up. Welcome back. Today we have another topic for you that we haven't covered on the podcast before. Um, flared gas mining. I came across a video recently um, and had to invite the the main character of that video to the show to explain a bit more of, of what was going on there. Hello, Paul. Hey, good afternoon. How are you doing, Jesse? Thank you for, so much for having me on this show. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Doing okay. It's a bit chilly here where I am in, in Cape Town. Walls are not insulated at, at all and we, we're in the middle of, of winter or beginning of spring. Today it's very chilly, so I'm sitting here okay. in, in a fleece. Um, Paul, before we get started, can you tell me the block height, please? Yes, today, it's, uh, at this moment, it is 804.394. Alrighty. The 30-day hash rate um, runs at 386.5 exahashes and we just took a big dump on the hash price down below $60 per petahash per day um, the, due to the difficulty um, adjustment that came, came in at 6% um, to the upside. Do you listen um, to that at all, um, Paul, at, in your daily work? Is that relevant to you, all these metrics? Well, okay. On the finance side, yes, these metrics are absolutely relevant to our under under uh, just the foundational growth of the business, uh, if our hash rate drops, you know, to a certain low, low level, then we have room for concern. But we don't monitor this uh, every day in and day out because we mine on gas. And on that gas, I'm kind of already beating the system with uh, from, a, from a capital constraint, right? Um, I'm not on grid. I don't have a meter, so to speak, that I am um, kind of behind. I am as close to the source of the energy being at the wellhead, the well site, or possibly on the pipeline um, before that power ever gets to a retail market. It gets consumed you know, there on that site. So my power cost is significantly low compared to uh, other competitors in the space. And as a result of that, my hash rate as a daily index isn't so much of a concern of mine as is my my work, right? Because I'm a serious professional on this. I, I believe in that proof of work. My work that I'm doing out in the field is far superior than right now that Bitcoin's hash price because I'm putting that flare out for the operator in its entirety. I am doing more than just creating cheap electricity for my business. I am serving this commodity, this market. That's how I see it. I want to provide the highest level of engineering acumen, the highest level of innovation. And I believe Bitcoin brings that to the any, any space that it's in. And it requires you to innovate 
in that space. And one of those driving factors is the cheap cost of electricity. And we have that a benefit to be able to generate electricity through generators, right? Natural gas engines. And if, if you follow that recipe, um, there can be success at the end of it. And what that looks like is a very low cost to mine or mint Bitcoin, similar to how you would hear from the, the riot blockchain groups of the world that claim, you know, $6,000 per Bitcoin mined, right? And we're dealing with $25,000 as a commodity price. We're in the same boat. And at the gas level, um, I have the opportunity to worry more about my operation from a use case for the operator then I need to worry about what today's hash rate index because mm-hmm. I don't turn off. Mm-hmm. And we are 24-7 just like you would be on the grid because the oil and gas industry doesn't stop, right? They don't turn off because it's 5 p.m. and it's time to go home. Uh, we pump oil through the night. We pump gas through the night, uh, whether it's winter or for you in Cape Town, it's cold. For me in West Texas, right now it's 97 degrees Fahrenheit. And we're only 2 p.m. in the afternoon. It'll get hotter as the day progresses. And as as we are in an El Nino weather pattern this year, not La Nina, we are expecting even longer cold winters this year and longer hot summers. So it's going to be kind of like the shoulder months start sooner and the sum uh, of, of the winter, but your summer months are hot. And very hot. So we had the mm-hmm. highest in Texas, you know, last week. I think it was 101 degrees across the entire state. And you know, that's a that's a um, a problem if you're on grid. And so for us, we have that same issue where the heat is something that we don't stop, and the cold we don't stop. And so again, um, my 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 approach to this is from an engineering approach. And so. You asked a question at the beginning, do we track this? I got a little bit further than we needed to into the discussion, but yes, we do follow the hash rate index. It is great from an investment standpoint to know kind of where you're headed. And at the same time, once you're established on gas based on kind of how our metrics are set up, you kind of don't worry about the hash rate index. You worry more about the client. You worry more about the gas um, processing. You worry about how you can serve the operators or your community and I promise you, with that, when you when you're good at that, then the Bitcoin rewards you, right, for that work. And that's yeah, kind yeah. of the. I mean, you 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 probably look at it to see how much room you have, um, but since you since you're very low on on energy cost anyway, it's it's not as important to you as as miners that sort of operate more more on that margin, I guess. Um, before we get into all of this, Paul, tell people a bit more about yourself. Um, we've discussed this before. This is actually your first time doing a podcast, believe it or not. Um, tell people your Bitcoin story as well, if if you want to share it, and uh, we'll we'll take it from there. Absolutely, yes. I'll start with my background. I am a mechanical engineer. I'm 40 years old. Just turned 40 uh, uh, two weeks ago, and um, you know my undergrad is mechanical engineering, and I graduated here in Texas, and. Um, Uh, at Texas Tech University. And from there, I went on to get my master's in petroleum. And I always thought that I wanted to be on the operator side in oil and gas, operating oil and gas wells. 
Um, after my master's, I moved to Midland, Texas. At that point, I did. I worked for an operator. Um, did the drilling, frack design, fracking, production. So I went through the whole gamut, uh, the vertical integration of like, you know, the systemic understanding of drilling a well all the way to taking that product to market um, and then maintaining that battery. That was my career um, here in the basin. And it wasn't until 2016 that I started purchasing Bitcoin uh, that I really first got into crypto as a whole. Bitcoin first, and I did buy some Ethereum, but I am a Bitcoin proponent to this day. Um, and it wasn't until uh, 2021, February, that myself and a couple of buddies, colleagues here in town, we kind of threw some money in and bought some uh, T17 pluses uh, used from what is the Alcoa plant. You guys will know this as Riot Blockchain's big facility there in Austin, Texas. It is, you know, one gigawatt. They're the biggest facility on the planet. Uh, you know, I bought my miners used on a pallet from those guys out of that warehouse before it was anything and brought them back home, tested them in my house, running an outlet from one side of the house and one from the other so I wouldn't blow any fuses, right, because these are T-17s. And then I uh, uh, essentially we purchased our first container, a small box from a group out of Canada, Upstream Data, um, and we went to go and find a flare well. And we did. We found a uh, an operator here in the uh, Permian Basin that was flaring gas. They had never sold that gas for any sort of market rate. And so we asked them, hey, can we try this pilot? We're going to put this engine out here. We're renting that engine. And we're going to run this box with 24 machines inside. Uh, are you okay with that? And they said, yeah. And so we just paid them. Like uh, At the time, it was like 50% of Henry Hub. We didn't care. Um, we were happy to be on a site and kind of get our proof case, uh, you know, get, get the, the, the opportunity to see that this really works. And day one turned into nine months. We ran for nine months with zero issues. We never turned off. We paid the rental. We were mining Bitcoin. Um, we managed to mine one whole Bitcoin from the, uh, the, the flare. We were only consuming about 17 MCF per day. That sounds like nothing. And, you know, we were paying, you know, maybe $2.50 per MCF because we were 50% Henry Hub. So it was like $5 gas and we were just paying whatever it was. But we were only consuming like $35 a day in a fuel charge. But we were still netting because it was like forty, fifty thousand dollars Bitcoin. We were still netting hundreds of dollars in actual Bitcoin revenue. And we were like, well, goodness, we can pay this Bitcoin price. I can pay the gas bill every day, no problem. And as long as I'm maintaining this sort of uh, uh, upside right, on the, on the mining, this was well before difficulty was a big issue and well before um, really deciding like what scale looks like. But at the time, you, you could turn an engine on, eat gas almost at any composition of that gas, right? dirty or clean and come out um, with a with a positive uh, revenue on that on the downstream and that just wasn't something that we've seen in the oil and gas markets in my entire career gas is treated as the redheaded stepchild no pun intended but as as it goes to, to the oil industry gas is uh, problems it, it, it 
pressures up your system. It is hard to manage um, and move. You have to have compressors, a lot of extra equipment. Also, if you have too much pressure at your facility, then your oil doesn't want to flow. Again, gas, they'd rather burn it. They'd rather vent it or just blow it off into the air and get that uh, crude, the, the oil that has all the value. And then until Bitcoin came around, you kind of just wanted to flare everything and just get it off. So now, you know, come full circle, we had nine months of a pilot and it worked out and we passed the hat last year and raised about a million dollars and deployed a full size unit to consume all of the gas for that operator. And so as of September of last year, we have had that flare off in its entirety um, the whole time. And so um, it either, uh, when it runs, um, you know, the only times that we are not running is during maintenance and maintenance is every 1,500 hours. Again, something that we talk to in our training program. But um, yeah, so our, the, the, the Genesis story, I guess, of Verde is we started at a, uh, as a pilot site on a flare operator, um, on gas that was being flared. They had no pipeline. They were stranded, 10 miles closest pipeline. They only ever knew to flare the gas. And so us coming in to say, hey, we could try this as a solution was an easy fix. They tried everything else with their gas. Um, and so uh, we will talk more into the discussion about composition. But um, I will say that it matters a lot what kind of gas and what commodity you're absolutely using for your mine. But um, all gas has you know, mining value. And so um, at the moment, you know, right now we are mining just under a megawatt. The site is intermittent, right? So gas doesn't flow continuous like the pipeline. Uh, it's just like, it's the opposite of the grid, right? You plug in, you expect that light or you expect that miner to turn on at just the, the outlet works, everything else. You don't know what's happening upstream of you right so you don't think about it you you think that like uh, i'm buying this power it comes at five cents contracted and that's it how do i get it cheaper than five cents well you need to go further upstream um, even of the substations right because that power comes from somewhere and it's typically not going to be solar at nighttime right it's probably going to be a coal plant or a gas plant somewhere that you don't even know exists and so seeing that, you know, we're in America, you're in Africa, we have two completely different ideologies on like what our governments might want to do with this or that resource. And at the moment, you are seeing that there is more and more big plants getting shut down in an effort to go renewable. And so our, our thesis here is that the best form of, of, of power is natural gas right now. Um, we have an abundance of that natural gas out here in the Permian, so much of an abundance that they have to flare so much that you can see it from space, okay? And that is a result of infrastructure failures that are out of my control. But if there were enough pipelines running outside of the basin to all the retail centers, the coasts, then maybe this wouldn't be an issue. But you cannot build a gas pipeline fast enough to, to, to supplement the drilling that is continuing yeah. out here in the development. And Plus, if I can interject there, the, the gas that you would the gas that you would transport at the point of 
where it's demanded would probably be more expensive than other, you know, fuel sources. So, so then, right, does it make sense economically to to transport it if there's no buyer at the other end of the pipeline? That's exactly the case. And even if there is a big buyer, what if between you and that buyer, you have surface owners that aren't the government and that aren't um, eminent domain, right? And they don't want to give you a, a right of way. They don't want to give you a lease. They won't yeah. let you come and build through their surface that they own because it's a different game here. And that, that pipeline in 2010 cost, you know, $1 billion to go from Midland to Galveston, which is a 500-mile stretch. Now that pipeline, same pipeline, is going to cost you $10 billion because you're going to have to go through and get 500 miles of right-of-way through thousands of, maybe tens of thousands of different individuals who are going to have to approve that this ground can be dug up so that a pipeline can get put in. All that money just to of get people's approval, right? You have to have, you have to think of, how much work goes into building a pipeline just to get commodity resources to a market um, uh, over here, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to do so. And it is very, very costly. And so people are seeing that like, if, if, if folks like myself exist to capture the power at the source, you're going to see possibly more, more of that as time, time progresses. I would prefer to see more engines and Bitcoin mining um, pop up in the oil field as opposed to LNG, CNG, um, any sort of terminals that would convert my gas to a liquid. Okay. Only because you lose an efficiency in that too. So my market is getting to the source where the power is generated, consuming it at the source, and then circumventing all that infrastructure that is necessary that we are currently still waiting on to be built so that we can drill more wells in the oil uh, uh, oil heavy rich environment, but is also gas rich too. And we're going to have too much gas coming out with all of this oil. And if you can't send that gas anywhere, they're not going to let you vent it. And they're, they're, they're slowly telling you to stop burning it. And you have folks now in New Mexico and in Texas that are being fined, operators that are being fined because you can see the plumes from satellite. And it's, it's, it's a problem, right? And so it's a cheap form of electricity that you are not utilizing. And if yeah, you... no, but I mean, b before, before Bitcoin mining, this gas didn't have any value, which is why it was burned, right? Um, Paul, we, we have to take a step back. This is, we have a bunch of questions already lined up here. Um, I want to get to a point where we talk through the capturing of the gas. How is it captured? And then um, through all the stages until it's basically electricity and turning into heat again um, and hashes. Tell me, before we do that, though, tell me what is an MCF quickly. Explain to the listeners very briefly what an MCF is or what it stands for. So one MCF would be an um, acronym for the measurement, cubic foot. Um, M is a thousand, right, in Greek. And CF is cubic foot. When you are talking about gas at your barbecue grill, right, you typically buy your bottle of propane and that has, you know, standard cubic feet. That's going to be um, in the hundreds of standard cubic feet, maybe. And um, what we're talking about is one MCF would be 1,000 standard cubic feet. Okay, do you so know, do you know at, at um, 
well, ambient pressure or one bar of pressure, how much kilowatt hours that translates to? Okay, yes. So, yes. So we do have an internal, um, so, because all, not all gas is the same. Composition of gas matters. If your gas is pure methane, like 99% methane, like what you would have at your house, it's going to have a capability of one MCF of clean gas is going to be one minor, one ASIC, what's minor, M50S, running all day at its um, normal mode. That is an efficiency. So assume one MCF of gas could be uh, 3,400 kilowatts on a 24-hour basis. So when I'm mining out in the field and you tell me, operator, I ask you first, how much gas are you flaring? They say, uh, it's probably three to 400 MCF per day. Okay, 400,000 standard cubic feet. I get that. And 400 MCF a day is really equivalent to about 400 ASICs. So right away, without even having to get squirrely with my math and worry about summer and winter, ambient temps being high and low, my engine's running different because it's ambient's high and then ambient's low. Um, I don't really care. I just know that 400 MCF a day, I'm going to basically be able to run 400 miners off of that. Now I can build around that a box generator around how many ASICs I'm going to need. Obviously, this is a well site, right? So um, that would be your question. One MCF would be one ASIC for 24 hours. Interesting. Now okay, what you're asking for is a cost. Yeah, yeah perfect. Which, and the cost I mean, it just needs to be a rough estimate, right? I'm, I'm looking for uh, for a rough figure because one MCF will will mean nothing to most of my uh, listeners. So just being able to say like one M, one MCF powers a miner a day, you know, de depending on how clean the gas is, what the uh, what the pressure is. See, there's a lot of factors that play into it, but let, let's not go to let's no, no, we don't have to get into it crazy. But another one that they can that might that your that your audience will like is for every dollar USD. One American dollar per MCF, right? If I'm paying one dollar per one MCF, that is equivalent to 1.3 cents per kilowatt hour. Okay, so when I am talking in this later on discussion and you say, well, how much are you buying your gas for? I'm going to tell you market rates and you're going to say, okay, well, what is that equivalent to on a per kilowatt hour basis? How cheap is this electricity? We're going to get into that. For every dollar that I have to spend on purchasing that gas, when I'm burning it through my engines, I am I am realizing 1.3 cents per kilowatt hour. So if my gas if my gas contract is three dollars per MCF, which is high right now, then that would be equivalent to me being behind the meter at basically 3.6 cents or 3.9 cents per kilowatt, right? So now you kind of get an idea of like what is gas what does gas purchasing agreements look like in comparison to uh, signing a PPA on grid. Okay. Why do so you on, why do you pay for the why do you pay for the gas at all? Pointed question, I know, but I mean, what's the the, the operator doesn't have any alternative. They they flared off. Okay, but that costs the money. Plus, they probably have to pay. I don't know some sort of fee or whatever for not um, for still emitting um, uh, greenhouse gases or whatever it is. So, so why do you have to pay them at all if there's no other demand for the power and the upside is still there? 
I mean, look, I call call me whatever you want, um, a fool, um, but all gas has value, and and I don't believe that the operator shouldn't be compensated for that. I am a true realist in this that like it's not their fault that they don't want to innovate. Okay, it's typical in this oil and gas industry. If you have a really good idea. It may take years for it to catch on, but once the operators take heed and listen to you, it's game over. No one's going to be able to compete with them. So you want to mine Bitcoin properly on an, on an industry level across the world, you get with the oil and gas industry. You don't do it and come in at an angle of like, how can I make money and you make nothing because you're some sort of bad person in my world. No, we're not. No, I mean, you, you could that, say you could but say, we're not playing that game. You could say we do revenue share, for instance. There you go. And look, those mineral owners, right? Those your grandfather, or like in my sense, my my grandparents who may have homesteaded in the turn of the century in America have minerals that they own and they don't know how to drill the wells. Somebody else comes and drills that well. But if that individual who drilled the well and got you to agree to sign on the dotted line and like, yeah, my minerals are yours now uh, through, through this lease. You hope that they have the best of the best to drill, the best of the best that produce, and the best of the best to sell. And if they're telling you, well, we can only sell oil because we're not creative enough to think outside the box, well, then you as a landowner or a mineral interest owner who can't go and shut that operation down, you signed on the dotted line. It's over. You want the best for your own asset that you hoped that they were coming for, right? And so I, I see it as, they're the best group to take this on and scale it for the rest of the world. They're just, er we're just early to it. And so your gas, and so the value where the operator doesn't have maybe any market to sell to. If I come in there and say, hey, operator, let me beat Henry Hub and pay you more for your gas than the markets will pay for your gas. Why don't you, and as a result of that, we could put this flare out or we don't have to worry about building infrastructure for a thousand miles. The infrastructure never has to come. We just stay here and mine in place on lease. No more of an insurance, no more gas leaking out into a pipeline, no pipelines. Not that that's a problem. We want pipelines to deliver to markets, but we're talking like maybe that pipeline's not coming for two years. They don't have two years to wait to not shut that acid in completely. Well, now you can mine your, your, your gas on site, sell your oil to whatever markets you want at any rate you want. But now that gas is going to see a higher value than anything else that you had anticipated as an operator. So like, I, and once they like that, then they're going to innovate. And then I sit back and let them innovate. And then I'm telling you right now that it, it takes over. And I don't want to necessarily be in control of the mining out here. I just want to, I just want to like educate people so that the wrong actors don't come in, right? The last thing you want is Exxon to get burned by a Bitcoin mining company that burns down their site because they didn't follow all the prudent engineering practices to make this work um, as a symphony, right? Play together. No, I think Exxon, Exxon as well as well on its way to be one of the first energy companies to really be deeply integrated with Bitcoin mining with what they're doing with Crusoe, I think. Um 
Paul, Paul, let's again, let's make one step back. Explain to people, and this is, you know, go as deep as you want. Um, I'm focusing on technical details, so happy for you to like really delve down. Explain to people how gas is captured and then sort of the whole chain of events before it hits the generator and spins a turbine. Okay. So out here in the Permian Basin, we have a shale environment, very tight resource play. When you drill the oil well, and now we're going to start really kind of far back. I'm not going to spend too much time on the, on the processing side, but this gas is captured in this oil. The, the temperature downhole is a high enough temperature that it's above um, bubble point. And what bubble point is in engineering terms is the point at which um, gas escapes out of volume, out of liquid, right? So when, you're, when your oil temperature is brought to surface and you're, you're producing the oil and you're bringing it up and putting it into tanks, you have a lot of us, what they call associated gas. It's gas that comes out of solution and gets uh, like also brought to surface. Granted, there are basins out here that are gas-only wells, right? They produce almost no water, and they only produce gas. That is not necessarily what we're talking about here, but we are talking about where you have uh, oil coming to surface, gas breaks out of solution, you have a ton of gas now. It's associated gas. How do you get rid of it? Um, and some instances, one, one, one more interjection, sorry, Paul. So, so yes, when sir. you when you pump the oil, right? It's it's filled into tanks, and then the gas separates from the oil in the tank, or does it happen externally of the tank? No, it's both. It's going to happen in the tanks as associated gas. It's going to break out. The oil in the tanks is going to cool off, and as the oil cools, it'll drop below bubble point, and gas will come out of solution in droves, volumes of gas. You turn a FLIR camera on and you're going to see if it's venting, it's going to be billowing out. Um, you're, to the naked eye, you're not going to really see that. But under FLIR, you're going to see the constituents of that gas vapor that's just coming out. What is FLIR? Explain what FLIR is. F-L-I-R, FLIR, like the ability to read. Uh, you're asking me the, the terminology. It's an acronym for reading uh, uh, infrared. Um, uh, It's a thermal, thermal cameras. What's happening right now in the basin, yeah, is how, it's how they catch you, um, uh, venting, the, the railroad commission or regulatory. Um, so the um, oil is produced. Gas comes with oil in almost all solutions. Uh, in all cases, when you have oil, you're going to have associated gas to some extent. <clears throat> That gas, when you're on surface, there's multiple ways of which you're going to process your facility, your battery. Your tank battery is going to have three phase, two phase, or single phase. When you have phases, they are speaking directly to oil, gas, water. You have a liquid phase in oil. You have a liquid phase in water. You have a gas phase, right? But you have uh, like a three phase separator or a two phase separator or no separator. On most batteries that we deal with, you have three phase separators, oil, gas, and water. Oil and water are going in, and the oil sheen is falling off over a DAF plate. And that's essentially what's happening. You're capturing your oil, and your gas is also rising off, if not also coming in that, that three-phase stream. means there's already gas coming out of the well in gas form, and there's oil coming up. And there's also going to be associated gas with that oil, right? So gas, you're, you're, you're processing from the wellhead. 
comes to the battery and you're going to hit a three phase separator so that you can separate all your different revenue streams out. From there, oil goes to its tanks, gas goes to the sales line, water goes to its tanks so that it can be disposed of later. While the oil is sitting in the tanks, more gas comes out of solution, right? Not the same gas that we are catching at the three phase separator at the first moment that the, the, the resource hits the battery. So in our situation where I am, and if you watch that video, you see what a tank battery kind of looks like. They're all the same. Uh, the, we have a two-phase separator, essentially, which is a heater treater. And that's just a big tube that is lit with gas that is coming from the well. And it's warming so that the vapors can get released off of that gas stream. It's a drying mechanism. And then we send the gas to flare. Well, that was before I showed up. So the gas would go directly off of the heater treater and then sent off down a pipeline to the flare to go away from the battery. What we do is we tie in right there at that junction where you have a T in the line. You're going to have this way down to the right. It's going to go to the flare. But if it goes this way to the left, it's going to go to this pipeline. We don't know what that is yet, but it's just going in this direction. And so what you see now is that point at which I'm tied into their facility is the one of the most important parts of the battery, right? Because that is the point at which Verde, my company, is taking custody or ownership of that gas, i.e., if there's any insurance happening or anything burns, it's going to be me, my fault. I carry insurance for my site. I have a master service agreement with the operator. I follow OSHA regulations. You know, like it's, it's, it's why I'm out there to serve that operator in the first place. They are not necessarily, maybe they don't have enough time. Maybe they don't have the technical acumen. Maybe they don't have the capital. Maybe they just don't believe you and they can't put that flare out themselves. They can't monetize that flare themselves. They just don't understand that we come in and we take all of that over for them and basically that is our entry onto that site. Okay, so now you're saying, okay, Paul, you can have our gas. I'm tied in. I'm going to custody this gas. At this point, the gas is mine. I'm telling you I'm going to take care of it. It's safe. On that video that you see, and we can put a link to your audience so that they can watch it through Minor Beast. Um, that, that was a group that just came in and shot a video. I promise you it was one take. And I, I just talked through the process, and it's, um, it's magnificent. Anybody like, we we will talk through this, right? But it still is tough to follow, and may having pictures associated with what you're saying is definitely uh, worth the watch. Yeah, absolutely, oh, I agree. No, 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 that's that's right. So off of that, off of their two phase separator or their heater treater, so to speak, I have taken custody of their gas. What that looks like for me is I run it into a six inch poly line. Poly is like a plastic. It's HDPE, right? High density polyethylene plastic, something like that. And it comes on a spool and a spool, meaning that like at once it was a 500 foot roll of this stuff, six inch pipe. And I would lay it. I laid it from their battery, 250 feet on surface over to where my battery would start, which is my engine, my, my mine, okay? And so what you're gonna see in that video, and which I will walk through, and you see it in the video as well, is 
that poly is six inch. And think of that poly as like a battery storage. And we'll get to that later. But think of it as storage for gas in its moment of need. Those wells that feed that system come from two operators. And it's a multitude of wells. Not all those wells pump all day long. They're on timers. Sometimes they're pumping and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're down for several days because they need treatment, uh, chemical treatment. That has nothing to do with me. I just, I'm not receiving gas from them. So what do you do? Well, my, I have an intermittent play. I understand that. But I am here as a solution for the operator. My gas is, you know, I'm paying, you know, 50 cents per MCF. So my power cost to burn is 0.006 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, I still have a maintenance fee on top of that, but when you add the maintenance fee in, we're still well under two cents per kilowatt to generate electricity at the wellhead. Okay, but like the gas is intermittent. Well, you know what? That's what's really kind of creative about all this is the Bitcoin mining does it for you. You know, those machines can ebb and flow based on frequency of the mine. Yeah, or the frequency of the well or the frequency of the gas flow. And what that looks like is when you have the gas coming through that poly, it's going to hit a, again, a two-phase separator, and it's going to be a vertical tank that you're going to see upright. That tank is only ever going to see about 50, 50 pounds max of pressure on it. It's a vessel that's rated for 400 pounds, but that's, I'm never expecting us to, ex to experience anything of close to 100. Because if I'm experiencing 100 PSI at my vessel, then the battery, the operator's battery is dealing with 100 PSI. And that is no-no. That's a bad thing if I have too much pressure at the operator's battery. How, how tall is that second tank? Just give me banana banana for scale. <laughs> it's about nine feet tall. It's a nine-foot tall tank, and it's about a 18-inch or one-and-a-half-foot diameter. Okay. okay, nothing crazy, nothing big, just a vessel. And what that vessel tank is designed for is gas and is getting pushed in at the halfway mark of the tank, okay? And inside the tank, the gas is obviously going to rise, okay? But in the tank, it's the tank's there set up in the case that the operator sends me liquids. If there's a problem at the facility, the battery, and the operator has maybe a dump valve stuck closed, and the water was supposed to dump automatically because there's a mechanical feature that does that for you, it got greased up. Uh, and not taken care of, and now they sent me water with that gas. It, it happens. It already happened once. That's why we have that tank there. <clears throat> and so if that water came, it would hit that vessel, and just like it's designed to, it's two-phase, the water or oil, in the case of whatever they sent us, would drop out. Gas is coming in. Both the gas and the liquid hit at the middle way of the tank. Gas is going to go up. Liquids are going to drop and hit the bottom. And the gas is going to go up. And in the video, you see where I have uh, the top line. The, the line comes out of the top of the uh, vessel, um, out, bends, and comes back down to basically the ground and, and runs back to what is going to be the flow meter. Out of the top is just clean, dry gas. The same dry gas that I've been getting the whole time, but they sent me water or they sent me an oil pill on accident. I don't want that to get to my engine. So we put this in place as an insurance policy. That is it. A two-phase separator you're going to find on every battery, just about for any oil producer. So that equipment is readily available. 
And for this two-phase separator that you see in the video, that was um, old equipment that the operator was no longer using. So instead of like throwing it away and junking it, I said, operator, can I buy this from you? Yes. And so I bought a, a reconditioned oil field equipment that we already have out here. All of this equipment for Bitcoin mining already exists in the oil basin. You just have to put the pieces together. The guys know how to run the engines and these guys know how to process the gas. All you have to know is how to mine Bitcoin, really, at the end of the day, and then find somebody in there that wants to maintenance the engines and kind of keep all the grease moving, right? And so that's kind of where we kind of fit into that whole approach. <clears throat> and so um, ask any questions, by the way, if you have anything. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just letting you phase it out because I think you've just summarized um, again, very beautifully how it works. And it's 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 not easy for somebody who's not been standing in front of something like this to envision, you know, where does the gas come from? How does it get separated? Where does it go through what pipe? Um, it's not very, very uh, uh, easy to, to explain or easy to understand if, you, if you've never seen this before. Um, I understand completely. And yeah. so, again... And the 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 note like look at the video it's it's really worth a watch um so i guess the all the gas that's in that second um battery um in that separator goes to the engine is that automatically yes, regulated yes. So, how is that regulated how much gas to goes to goes to the generator so from the two-phase separator think of it as just an insurance policy that i never receive liquids from my producer or from my operator after it leaves um i'm only ever expecting gas to come through there If they are sending me gas, then the gas just goes and hits the vessel, goes up, comes back out and goes around. Nothing slows it down, right? It's just as though a pipeline was doing this, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Almost like a, a 360 or a loop-de-loop. -loop. And, yeah. and in that loop-de-loop, -loop, if there's water, the water settles out and doesn't make the loop-de-loop, -loop, right? Gotcha. So I'm loop-de-looped. I've loop-de-looped out of the vessel and I've come to an ABB flow meter. ABB is just a manufacturer. You'll see yeah. them if you search ABB. The German They're brand, very international. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Very, they do all kinds of electronics. Exactly. PLCs, all that stuff that you can do to monitor your equipment across the board. We have that exact SCADA equipment, an ABB flow meter with an orifice plate. Gas runs through this flow meter. The way these flow meters work is I have two inch pipe. Um, and in that side of that two inch pipe, I have a, a, a washer. Think of like a, a three-inch washer with a, a, a hole drilled in the middle, right? Just like a washer for your bolt and nut, nuts and bolts. That washer sits inside of that um, orifice plate, as they call it, and that allows gas to push through and hit that plate and have to go through that hole. And we are reading it on both sides of that orifice plate. And we are determining our rate, real-time, pressure, temperature, um, ambient, Our, um, you know, that unit tells me yesterday's volume. It tells me today's current volume. And um, you could really program it to do a whole bunch of other stuff that I think is kind of useless, but uh, it can give you a bunch of readouts. So what uh, the important thing is, is static pressure. So from the ABB flow meter, it goes right out and into the engine. On the engine, you're going to see in that video too, we have another, you call it a... Um, um, a scrubber. Okay. It's again, it's another two phase separator, just like we had beginning of the uh, flow meter, except this is on the engine. 
This is a much smaller volume. Call it maybe three gallons. Three gallons of liquid could be potentially hitting this and then getting dropped out. And it's pneumatic, right? So it's gas operated and it has a, again, it's maybe an eight inch diameter, three feet tall tube vessel. That's where all my gas is hitting to the engine before the engine gets to eat it. This is, again, the secondary, or you could call it your tertiary line of defense against liquids hitting my engine. I don't want it. I don't want liquids. And does, so, the, um, does the flow meter that you described previously, does the ABB flow meter, does that also control the engine automatically to tell it no. how much gas there is coming or not? No, 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 no. We, we want the engine to see it more of a static scenario, okay? Mm -hmm. Think of, um, um, for flare gas, I may have a day where my height of production might be 150 MCF a day, okay? In the same operating condition, I may have a low end of 70 MCF per day. I don't want to turn off in either scenario, right? I want my engine to always run. It's going to be doing this, right? A, a sign, right? My gas production is going to be either high and holding or down low and holding or maybe somewhere in between. And I, I can't claim to tell you when or why it's going to be high or low. It's the production of the wells. These are old wells. It's legacy production. Yeah, yeah You know, you, I, I bit off what I knew I could shoot, right? So I knew I could handle this range and I don't want my engine to turn off. So my, my ABB flow meter doesn't talk to my engine. It talks to my mind. And it tells my mind to regulate load based on gas availability. And then the frequency of the mind matches the frequency of the flow meter. And then the engine in between only just stays constant. That's the intent there. So I'm not overcharging or overspeeding the engine. And I'm not underspeeding the engine. And that looks like where you are trying to put a a 500 kilowatt load on an engine and you're only feeding it enough gas to ever put out 100 kilowatts in that moment. And that engine is asking for gas and it's getting starved of gas in that real time moment because maybe those, those wells pumped off and that means they are no longer going up and down. They're waiting for the oil reservoir to fill back up with fluid before they turn back on and bring that fluid to surface. That could be 15 minutes, that could be 30 minutes in a one hour window, but it's always measured like in an hour, how often you're pumping, okay, on and off. And so I have to play with that intermittency. And so my flow meter is set up where um, I have a PLC on that flow meter. I have a PLC on my generator. Both are wired into my modem in my Bitcoin mine container. What I is do a that PLC, so that, Paul? Explain what a PLC is. So like, uh, don't let me mess up what the uh, acronym is. PLC for programming is, uh, it's like a console that you build. Um, oh, goodness. Uh, so, so, so it's like your, it's my brains to my, um, is it a software? my equipment. It's my programmable logic controller. Sorry. It's like a, it's like my, um, I'm going to build out a box and inside that box, I'm going to have a brain. That brain is going to control my fans. It's going to control my PDUs inside the container. It's going to control my internet. It's going to control my, my engine if you wanted it to control your engine. And so for us, the PLC 
is talking to the PLC on the flow meter, which is the real time um, rate of gas. And if I see a lull in gas production, the meter is going to see it first before the engine. But the change is going to have to happen on the electronic side before the engine sees it. So we catch that beforehand and shed load at the at the mine so that the engine can stay on. Remember, there's a part of this whole business that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the carbon credits, which we can get to. But to stay online and to have to have uptime, you know, on grid, people talk like, oh, I've got 90, 97 or up above 97 percent uptime with my engine, my machines. That's awesome. I'm like 99.5 percent. I don't turn off unless the the mine requires me. No, you just you ramp down. I guess you could say I ramp down. Your, yes. your what's your capacity factor? I guess would then be question. How often are you running at full load throughout the year, or what's the average load that you run at? Well, that is that's a great question, and like I think uh, what you basically do is you take your average year's uh, output of of gas that we've consumed and put a curve to it, really. And then just determine that your median was somewhere in there in that middle. And I, I, you're asking a question. If you're actually asking how much that is, I don't have that specific number for you for that site. But what I can say is it still honestly doesn't matter that I have my ebb and flow. I'm not dictated by on-grid terms. If they tell yeah, me no, to but shut it, off, but it, it just shows how beauti so beautifully how how right in in a connected grid environment we talk about the 50 hertz frequency or the 60 hertz frequency in your case. Um, and here we are saying, okay, the generator needs to run at a certain speed all the time. And to, gener to, to guarantee that we're now basically going outside of the generator and building a bridge digitally between, yep. between the input and the output. And now we're saying we're going like, to uh, regulate the output to make sure that the generator never understands that, that something has changed, basically. And, and run yes. at that even even line. Um, yes, how... because I don't want to make the engine have to do all that work. That's unnecessary work on the engine when it's the heart of this system. No, but that my up until two minutes ago, I would have thought the engine goes up and down, and and you know, there's just a I guess a range in which the 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 voltage of the PDUs for these mining machines works, you know, and you don't want to go below a critical point. I, I had no concept of, of how it works. No, yeah. And and you know, for 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 what else giving an example of my high side being maybe 150 a day with a low side being 70, there are engines that exist on this planet that can operate in those conditions and swing between those conditions whilst not harming the equipment. Yeah, down here we're probably running at like 50, 60% load on the generator. And that's not great, but that's not going to kill it. And we're, 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 we're not, we're not, again, the solution here is that flare does not turn back on. Okay. Uh, when Bitcoin's a hundred thousand, we can completely discuss a different scenario and the operators are going to want way more money for that gas. But as a, as a, as the crow flies right now, $30,000 or $26,000 Bitcoin gas is worth $5 and 50 cents per MCF. And I'm buying it for 50 cents. So I have a $5 market there to capture how best I can do, I guess. And so... Um, explain, um, to, explain to people, Paul, the, the poly. You, you said uh, the poly was designed as a, as a battery. And you're using the word battery in a 
um, sense to sort of uh, um, summarize maintain time. No, time. what I'm what I'm saying, you, you use the um, you use the word battery earlier before you you said yes. something like before it hits the battery, okay. meaning like yes. the, the the what does the battery mean in that? Okay, uh, two terms there. So one, I meant the term battery is a tank battery, like you've been seeing on the facilities that the operator, the oil and gas company build the battery. That's a tank battery. It has tanks holding oil and water and pipelines. The other battery, I have my own battery. I have, I guess, my own tank battery, right? Because I have a vessel that I have uh, commissioned that is upstream of a flow meter. That vessel and flow meter is my small version of tank battery. Because if you send me liquids, operator, it'll hit my tank battery, it'll drop out, and then I have a polyline that sends those liquids back to you. So if you accidentally sent me oil, I would capture that oil and send it back to your oil tank so you lost no production, nothing lost. You just accidentally sent it to me. It didn't get burned. It didn't get dumped on the ground. It goes right back to your tanks. Yeah. And so that's the other battery. What I meant for the poly is battery like your watch battery, like your phone battery. Um, I have time. Um, when my wells pump off because I'm intermittent with my production, I'm not on a pipeline. I'm not behind a compressor plant. I'm not even at a station where I'm getting consistent gas always, like where the rate is held with the pressure 24-7. I get, I get pressure, but I get rate throughout the day here. And so <clears throat> I have to fight with the intermittency that this system provides me. When I don't have any wells producing of, uh, for that to that flare, I have probably an hour of gas in the lines, right? Think of it as a straw. I'm sucking that straw. Remember, like, there will be blood. He's seeing how he talks about lateral drilling, and you, my straw is over here, but I can suck up everything from over there. I am sucking up everything off of that system that I can yeah. possibly consume. How much MCF so, fits into, into, the, into the, the polyline? So the polyline is, that's, a, that's another good question because whilst I can tell you that six inch diameter, 250 feet is this technical volume, it depends on the composition of your gas. Oh, my gas, it is gross gas and I have like 25% nitrogen in the composition of that gas. What it, what it, what it equates to is that polyline serves as my processing line of the gas to come to my facility whilst also providing that battery. When all those wells pump off, I can continue to suck that volume and that gives me about a 45-minute window to maintain full load on the system to where I hope in that 45 minutes these wells kick back on to resupplement that gas so that load stays full. If the wells don't kick back on in that 45-minute window, then the flow rate at the ABB is already seeing a degradation at rate. And if the moment it sees that as a static pressure, it's telling the box to shut down miners. So I'm already shutting down miners the moment, kind of probably 15 minutes into the moment that the wells all stopped pumping. 
the first indication of a pressure drop happened, I still have a 45 minute window, but I keep pushing machines off until we are uh, supplemented with uh, a rate. And that rate increase happens instantaneously. The meter will see that gas has kicked on, which would be an indication that one of the wells in the field has started pumping again and gas is immediately going to hit the system. Miners turn around and start picking load back up. Um, engine stays on. Flare never turned on during that time. Okay, two questions. What happens when all the like? What happens if there's no gas and that hour runs out? Just very briefly. We shut what, off. What turn, we shut off. All the, all the miners shut off, and then the, yep. the generator also shuts off. Yep, and then the gas gets diverted to the flare, and the flare kicks on. Okay, if so, if so there, the flare is not. Gas. If there is if there is gas and we are not operating for any reason because of our fault, like the engine turned off because it couldn't handle the swing, and the equipment couldn't handle the swing in that moment. Okay, then the flare. Okay, gotcha. Then the but, then the insurance kicks back on and the and the flare is just utilized. But what if there's You're simply up. no what if there's simply no gas, Paul? What happens then? So the miners go off. We stop. Yep, we're yeah. off completely. Completely. And the generator stops spinning last, or, or yes, no, it stops completely. It'll shut down on its own completely, and and it'll it'll uh you know the the engine itself needs a minimum gas volume just to start up right just like your vehicle you turn on your car and park and run your air conditioning you're burning through gasoline not at the same rate as you would be driving but you're just sitting idle in neutral the engine's doing the same thing but it needs a maintained basis. And for like our engine, that looks like 60 MCF, right? So if it's dropping below 60 MCF, there's almost just not enough gas because of our gas. Our volume is is, is uh, comprised of this, this, and this um, chemical makeup, which is not as pure and clean as your gas that would be better to run in my engine. So I am at a D rate. And so we have to uh, deal with that again. The D rate occurs because we engineered the heck out of the system to accommodate that all that gas is consumed under no circumstances that flare turned back on is and, kind of the. Yeah. Okay. No, that that's perfect. I understand what, what you're saying. Um, okay. That, that's very good. The, the, the generator turns on automatically, I assume. No, we have, uh, it depends on the technique that, uh, it depends on the, uh, technology that you have there. If we are running our cat genset with a um, updated control panel, yes, we can remote start from the phone, from like our cell phone, right? If we, if we, if we are not, um, uh, and we're a little bit more archaic, um, and the site calls for it, right? Because I don't want to turn back on a 10 megawatt site remotely. We're going to send our team out there. If the site had to go down and it was a megawatt or more, you just, you have to have on-site personnel. You, you would, I, I promise you. you as, as technology exists to remote start that, um, something happened to shut that thing down. And that's not going to be something that you're going to want to turn back on without putting eyes on it. Because in our day and age, our equipment runs so consistently that for us to be offline is due to a gas issue. And, and honestly, at this point, nine out of ten times, an operator issue. Yeah, so but what, if, what if they just don't pump 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 oil for like a week? Yes, you're right. We would be at the detriment of that system. We would not be on. And so I guess that's that's the uh, yeah that is the understanding that you are kind of there at the mercy of the contract. 
again, yes, maybe they're down for a week, but my gas is only fifty cents per amp. No, no, no. That, I, I'm not. I'm not okay, talking okay. about price. I'm just saying, like, if if it turns off for a week, there's no gas for you to run off of. The miners go off. The generator goes off. If yep. and we are they then start completely. producing again because they're not, you know, they're just gonna do it whenever they do it. They trust that you've set up the system in a way where it can handle and respond, right? In that moment, you probably get a notification or whatever. The flow meter realizes, okay, there's yep. gas again. Turn on the generator. Let's go. Yep. Um, yes, or there's pressure exactly building right. up because the, the the gas is not going anywhere. So now you've got pressure in the system and you don't want it to go over 100 or whatever. So then you probably also get notifications on your phone to say, hey, like pressure is building. Let's turn on the generator so it can eat. Yes, <laughs> and take, that's exactly take right. Off. Yeah. Yes, okay, gotcha. that's exactly right. Talk to um, me, Paul, lastly, bef before we um, circle out here. Talk to me briefly about CO2 certificates. What, what What's the situation there? Okay, so um, yeah, we have kind of a, um, it's a market that exists as a, as a very new market, the carbon credit, right? The whole kind of registry that exists around the globe. ESG as a uh, product is, is new, I think, to a lot of people. I think people are starting to wrap their minds around not just like, I mean, first understanding ESG, but like what generates or what puts value to any sort of like maybe an ESG project. And uh, for us, that's one of the things that we think has some bit of a tremendous value. Um, for our flare, just to understand so that your, your, your audience understands, when you flare and burn gas through a flare, it, you have to be under optimal conditions, which would mean like you'd have to be like in a, in a building where you have no wind, you have good clean temperature so that your facilities aren't dealing with like high heat or, or cold, cold, you know, you have consistent, uh, same flow, same burn. And in that perfect scenario, which you've never had, you are still only consuming like 95% of the constituents in that gas composition. That 5% that you aren't burning, if you see a flare, might be the black smoke, might be just liquids coming off. And so that, um, that, piece of it is going to deter, you know, um, or help you with how much you're pulling out of the environment, in addition to just the energy that you're creating. One of the things that we did is uh, participated this site, that one, uh, our first site um, in the Vera registry. Vera is worldwide. Um, we picked Vera because they are worldwide. I think there's like five different uh, current carbon registries in the United States. Typically they, they play to United States. Um, I, I, I think the markets are much larger in the UK, Europe and Australia. Um, and so we opted for the Vera registry. It takes a heck of a lot longer to get um, authorized and um, like verified. We are 11 months into the process and we are at the final stage um, where they send out representation to get our site um, fully fledged, at which point they will also hand over the credits that we have been generating for the last up to, they will, they will uh, retroactively um, reimburse you for two years worth of, of credits. Um, and so um, we have been running, you know, uh, a small site, albeit a starter, and it's about 150 MCF per day. 
and it's got this nitrogen consistency. It's got uh, CO2 in it. It's got uh, just a bevy of, of uh, NOx gases that are harder on the environment, and especially that methane. That 5% that I talk about in that delta that's not getting burned is the constraint or the condition of what most people argue about of X amount of tons of CO2 and X amount of tons of methane. And remember, for every ton of CO2 that you emit through flare, you're emitting 20, it's like 29 times the same volume in methane. And remember, methane is the greenhouse gas, and that is what causes, you know, the holes in the ozone layer, truly. Uh, methane takes many, many years to break down, and it just sits up there. And so um, there is a, you know, in the United States, there is a, um, a bill or, uh, that was passed last year, the Inflation Reduction Act, and it was like a $2 trillion bill that was signed. And in, the, in that bill, there's a um, Methane Reduction Act that they are that they proposed and they got through. And I think it's funded with like $80 billion. <laughs> and so we, you know, that is a market that is uh, available for folks like us who are abating gas in this manner. It's a very closed system. Sorry. And, and, and so the, the credit, the credit wrecks essentially are given to us in lieu of our burn is much cleaner burn than a flare. And as a result, we can, quantify a volume that we are not emitting into the atmosphere any longer. And with that, the Vera registry acknowledges that that is the case. Our science is not um, further polluting the environment. We have proven that through the equipment that we use. They also check off on that. And then, and then the project is fully vetted as as long as you're running this volume, this is what you would expect to receive on a credit rec, rec system. <clears throat> and they come daily or they come monthly. I'm, I'm, we're not exactly sure. I generate them daily, but as they end up in my account, I don't know if that's a daily thing occurrence or if it's going to be bi-monthly or whatever. We're not worried about that so much as we are acquiring them in the first place. Now, the reason that I care about the carbon credits is that um, – Kind of twofold. A, it shows you that I really care. That like I'm telling you that we're doing what we're doing. We're not making this go away. But then over here on the backside of the engine, we're just flowing out some constituent, right? That nobody's aware of. No, no, no. This whole process is clean, very transparent. Bitcoin is transparent. You don't have to hide. You know, it's very easy to share your. There's no secret here. There's no secret here, right? All the equipment exists in the oil field already. The only thing that's new is how we put it all together. I mean, ASICs have been around since the beginning of time, since computers were around. We just didn't use them for, you know, uh, you know, hash 256, SHA-256. We were using them for to innovate the industries that they were part of. So all of the equipment exists, engines, processing equipment. Just who would have guessed that if you could put this engine downstream of this gas source and make more money than... Had I tied it into a pipeline, you know, boom, the light bulb goes off and then people start to innovate around that notion. That's what we want. And the moment that the innovation comes with a group as big as the oil and gas industry, then you have an increase to better livelihoods. 
you're going to have smarter people as a country because everybody's innovating at the same pace and the technology is going to come faster and it's going to be utilized easier. I mean, if you want to talk about bringing nuclear power plants back, even as SBRs, small mobile units, who the hell is going to run it? Who's qualified? I don't care if it's a salt reactor. That's not easy to run. And that's still dangerous. But like, if you want all this technology out, who's going to operate it? It's got to be the people that use it. And so Bitcoin is a fantastic catalyst to push not only like engineers, but anybody into like, okay, I want to go to the cheapest source of power. What is that? This gas. Okay. I have access to it. How do I do this? I'm going to learn and figure this out. And lo and behold, it's all there. We already have it. And there, I'm not telling you anything that's secret to me. Only thing that's secret to Paul and Verde might be a contract that we signed, right? Maybe my price is slightly cheaper than yours. But my process to go from operator to my uh, Bitcoin mine is going to be the same between both all of us. Same. My, exactly. My the the guest from two episodes ago might have a bit of a different uh, opinion <laughs> on the whole nuclear side of things. <laughs> Should go have have a listen. Um, okay, I Ryan will. Mc, Absolutely. McLeod is a is a nuclear um, scientist from from Canada. Um, okay. Paul, tell me just in relation to the revenue that you make now, what do you expect from these wrecks? Okay, so uh, you know that's that's kind of funny. We have. One of my the partners on the team, Carlos, he's the PhD, and Carlos is the one who has you know his dissertation is on uh, mining Bitcoin with flare gas to save ERCOT. Right, ERCOT is our big grid reliance uh, company here in Texas. It's our co-op, so to speak. They're the people that have all the power moving every which way, and it's a broken market. And so Bitcoin does fix that in certain ways if deployed properly, in our opinion. And so um, Carlos would speak really well to the pricing as we see. That's why we joined the Vera registry so that we could tap in international markets. Okay. And um, we are saying somewhere in the figure of a hundred pounds per ton of, of resource play overseas. Pounds, um, British pounds. British pounds. Yes. So maybe like $130 US per ton. And whereas in America, I think they're paying anywhere from $25 to $50 per ton. So the market's maybe catching up, but uh, at the same time, the European market's growing and getting even higher. Uh, I don't have the, the exact uh, articles, but there's been multiple um, discussions on the Vera, not just Vera, but the carbon registries themselves pushing for higher pricing to almost force more industry into that realm, uh, which I'm not, I'm not displeased with. If I'm generating the wrecks, I'm happy to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a slight it's a slight tongue in cheek for approach, but from a from an analytics position and from a doing the best for my business, if Bitcoin goes to zero, then I still have a reason to be on site. Just yeah, from plus the you could wrecks. you could always that's what people often don't understand. The value for, for mining is not often in the Bitcoin mining. That part is exactly. comparatively simple. It's, it's all about the access to energy infrastructure and pivoting yep. into hydrogen generation or AI or whatever, like some, some miners are now doing. 
Um, yep. The play is the access to cheap power and, and having yes. infrastructure. Reliable, to, to reliable cheap power, right? Yeah, yes, because, it. yeah. And that's another, if Bitcoin didn't exist, then we would probably be working for the DOD, right? Probably running uh, algorithm contracts in our Bitcoin mines because they need a computer that runs 24-7 to execute a software program that they've been testing, but they don't have access to the processing power that would require maybe a three-week run, right, on this AI script. Yeah, any, anything, anything that's low bandwidth enough to work. 100%. And, yep. Yes, that's right. You know, Paul, Paul give people a, a handoff to, to your... Um, to the training program that you've that you've started and then i have one more question for you before we close up sure so um in, in a in a frenzy to build community and knowledge around the same kind of uh mining infrastructure being gas we do provide verde here in midland uh local um, you can fly in absolutely monthly we provide a training program um, it's a three-day course. We take you through uh, the entirety of mining off-grid, specifically utilizing natural gas. Uh, we talk through the engines, the maintenance, the costs. We walk you through uh, building out a uh, financial deck for your Bitcoin mine um, on Excel. Uh, we walk you through, you know, we have a software engineer, Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas is our cryptographer, and he is... Uh, the one who walks you through our entire network on the on site. When you know when you mine off grid, having online reliability is of mega importance. You know we run LTE networks with Starlink as a backup, and running all of that internet again, it's low bandwidth, so maybe two megabytes download is all you need for your mine to run. Um, but our training program walks you through kind of the the cliffs notes. If that's something y'all are familiar with, the, the we've been at this for two years on gas in the field, dealing with every different problem that you can possibly imagine. And your training would get you through kind of all that really fast, get you back on your feet right away, know who to use, what, uh, you know, our vendors, our folks in the basin here in the in the area that I live. Obviously, if you don't live close to me, we could probably find the same uh, necessary team members that you would want, right? Your service companies to assist in your operations where you're from. But we teach you that. And we walk you through not only the classroom piece, but we are very serious on in-field training. And so we walk you through the mine and we teach you on site. And I think, you know, there's people just don't understand that you don't have to be an engineer to be in this position. Bitcoin, I think, is created to have no barriers to entry. Anybody, special needs, anybody, uh, your librarian could come out and mine Bitcoin better than some of the best mechanical engineers on this planet. And I'm just saying it just comes with like understanding how the processes work. And the beauty about all this is that we don't limit ourselves to just that category of people. Anybody is welcome. If you have a desire to learn how to mine Bitcoin, um, um, then uh, we believe we have a course that can teach towards that. We also talk about the, the land ownership piece, right? Contracts, signing contracts, creating a contract, a surface use agreement. These are all terminology that you would that you would want to have in your back pocket as a like 
tool for when you go into that uh, conversation with that operator, they're going to take you more seriously if you are discussing terms in their language. If you are asking them, hey, I want to mine Bitcoin, you know, because we come from the oil and gas industry and moved into Bitcoin mining, whereas probably 90% of the people out there that want to mine Bitcoin on gas are in a different industry and they want to step into the oil and gas industry to do that, to, to, right? Because it's the cheapest source of power. And I think we help to create that sort of barrier to that entry and allow people to understand kind of how that comes together. So, and you we can link, check us out on their website. The website. Yeah, there perfect. We will link the website. We will link the, um, the program. We will link the video. Um, before you leave people with some information where they can follow you and all of that. Paul, let me ask you the following. Does Bitcoin consume enough energy yet? No. No. We are so... No. You know how much wasted gas... You know how much wasted gas is out here in the Permian. And we're just talking about Texas alone. The amount of flare gas is tens of thousands of MCF per day. It would be able to power so much of the country if you were harnessing all of that as you know power generation if you weren't able to put it to somebody's house or somebody's infrastructure then the best next best thing would be to create an ungodly amount of revenue that could cull bills right that could take people out of poverty that could feed people um, endlessly because they just until they get their, their, their button gear and build that pipeline or innovate their own facility, that gas is going to keep flaring at that volume. So the intent there would be, oh my goodness, we are so early and Bitcoin can fix so many of that unutilized power that we have access to. I, I yeah. totally agree. So that's a big fat no from Paul on yeah. the question. Leave people with some links for where can they follow you and ask you questions and all of that good stuff. Absolutely. So I have, um, you know, I'm not mega into social media as much as I maybe was in college, but um, you can get a hold of me through X, right? Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Verde Mining. Uh, that's V-E-R-D-E-M-I-N-I-N-G. On Twitter, or sorry, on Telegram, uh, you can get a hold of me personally. And that's going to be at Neanderthal, and Neander, just like Neanderthal, right? The 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 guys that were unthawed in the ice, you know. That's a walking joke amongst me and my friends. A lot of folks call me a Neanderthal because you know I'm six five, I'm a big stature, and they just think that I thawed out of the ice somewhere. So my nickname is Neanderthal. And, we'll put uh, it in the show notes for people. There you go. There you go. So Telegram and Twitter are the best forms of communication. Beyond that, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can hit me a, a, a note on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to reach out. Um, and um, That's why I found you. Okay. Okay. Yes. And, yeah. and LinkedIn, I, I do check out often. Uh, more, more now. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. All right, guys. I really hope you were able to take something away as every week. Um, I think Paul did a beautiful job of yeah, going through the technical details, which is what we love here uh, on this show, of how mining off of flared gas works. I've learned a lot. I can, I can tell you that much. Go check him out. 
Um, look at the show notes. Remember that Bitcoin doesn't use enough energy. Remember to listen to the show on Fountain or Breeze. Um, yeah, and until next time. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Don't forget, Berlin Bitcoin Space. <laughs>